Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Vikram Mansharamani, an author and a lecturer at Harvard University, where he teaches students the art of tough decision-making. He's also an advisor to Fortune 500 firms on how they can navigate uncertainty in today's business environment. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Vikram. Thanks for having me. So, Vikram, a lot of your thinking has to do with this assessment that our society has tended to start to really emphasize specialization. We ask our kids to specialize in things in schools. We call that a major. We have people in companies that are really asking for specialized skills and might even compensate more for them. Uh, But I think that your work suggests that there's something more important than specialization with respect to how we make decisions. I wonder if you can take our listeners through your thinking on this topic. Sure. So actually, it's it's funny. In an earlier version of Think for Yourself, um, in a manuscript stage, I had a section called Blame Sputnik. Um, and the Blame Sputnik section was, look, we can actually trace some of this specialization instinct back to the Sputnik moment when America realized we were possibly behind the Soviets in the space race. So therefore, let's invest in research and development. And that resulted in capital, government dollars, research support flowing into narrow and narrower areas of focus. The result is people develop blinders and the blinders enable focus. But focus is a two-edged sword, right? So if we think about it, if I tell you, Joe, you're going to be really deeply focused and that's great, you're going to view that as a positive statement. I'm going to turn around and say, Joe, you're deeply focused. That means you're broadly ignoring. And you're going to say, wait, what? So yeah, actually, broadly ignoring. That's the other way to describe deep focus, right? You've developed tunnel vision in a specific area. You pay less attention to the context. And so my belief and real uh, strong conviction is that liberal arts is a positive thing to consider uh, for those that want to be able to navigate uncertainty. But more importantly, even I would argue more critical than a liberal arts style education is to get integrated education, which is not to have multiple silos taught, but to actually possibly rethink the educational infrastructure and say, look, we're going to teach based on problems. So let's take a challenge, a problem, climate change. Okay, why not bring someone with economic expertise into the class to help the class understand the economics of climate change, but also bring in a political scientist, also bring in a philosopher to talk about the moral issues that may be relevant. And so you can see how integrated education is different than siloed multidisciplinary education, which is very different than purely siloed education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what you're really talking about is how we make decisions in light of the fact that there are algorithms all around us. So any of us that have been to Netflix or Amazon know that these these websites are trying to help us to guide us to make these decisions. And it's pretty easy for us to fall into that trap. But I think that you suggest that there's a better way to balance this. Uh, You call it mindfully managed focus. I wonder if you could talk our listeners through what this, uh, this concept means and how to really cope in a world in which algorithms are being thrown at us left and right. Sure. So it it comes down to this idea that we think we should be able to optimize everything, that there is, in fact, a maximum possible ideal 
perfect choice that we can make. A lot of us feel inadequate that we can't make those choices. Um, and in some cases, that leads us very quickly to run headlong into the arms of experts or technology that offer to give us that maximum, perfect, ideal, optimized selection. Um, and so we outsource our thinking. And so my suggestion has always been uh, it's really important to think about that uh, as a consumer who's interacting with these experts and, and technologists and technologies that know more about a particular domain than we do. So it might be okay, for instance, to go home and say, all right, I've had a long day. It's hard. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch a movie with my wife. Now, if I wanted to optimize, I could bring out a spreadsheet, download Rotten Tomato ratings, look at various uh, awards, look at critical reviews uh, and optimize a spreadsheet to say, this is the movie that's perfect right now for me, given that I have 10 million movies on demand at my fingertips. Alternatively, the stakes are low. I can mindfully choose, okay, you know what? I'm just going to outsource my thinking. Netflix thinks I'll enjoy this. Let's just watch it. Let's just watch it. It's easier. So for a low stakes decision, I'm comfortable. Outsource your decisions. Do it knowingly, open-mindedly and say, okay, fine. Netflix is developing an algorithm of what they think I like. And so I'm going to get more and more of that. And it's going to tunnel me into a particular type of movie. The alternative is you go to see a doctor and you have a medical condition and they're recommending a procedure uh, that might be a little bit more risky, possibly probabilistic in a way that you may not fully appreciate. Here, I don't think you want to blindly outsource. You want to mindfully outsource. So maybe what you do is you say, Doc, I'm not sure. I want to see a different thing. Do you mind if I get some other advice? I want to read. How did you come up with this idea on your own? What is leading you to suggest this to me? Get the data, think about it, maybe seek other opinions, etc. But do it with a little more deliberation. And so it has to do with the stakes of the decision. That's terrific. And I think that you also point out that we are now in a place where we are drowning in data. And the situation that you just described where Netflix can recommend what I want feels comforting in a world where there are so many things, so many factors that I can look at. And it's just kind of comforting to outsource that. And you quote the psychologist Barry Schwartz, and he says, at this point, Choice no longer liberates, but debilitates. It might even be said to tyrannize. So are these techniques that you're describing something that can help us more successfully navigate the world of data as it just becomes so pervasive? I hope so. <laughs> right? like, so the, the hope here is that we learn that data is useful as an input and multiple sources of data are therefore more useful but having redundancy in data is not as useful as having different sources of data, right? So in the domain of business, yes, you can get data through multiple sources. That's wonderful. You want to analyze that data, connect the dots amidst some of those different data points that hopefully results in analysis that leads to insights. But ultimately, you want to drive all of that towards actions that are helpful and useful that can get feedback to improve your analysis going forward. So all of that is a long-winded way to say data is definitely useful. We're drowning in data, but I'm, I would make an argument that we're often drowning in redundant data uh, mm. and that therefore what we need is um, you know, different sources of data or differentiated data uh, and, and to look at data not as uh, siloed but as uh, you know, multiple silos or multiple lenses. Think of data as a lens, right? It's just one of many. Uh, and so use more than one. And do you think of technology as 
contributing to this problem is in some respects the AI that we have just one more expert and one more expert that we could take into consideration. How do you think technology is changing our relationship with expertise and data? Yeah. So the way I think about it, Joe, is that expertise can be embodied in many forms. Expertise embodied in a human being you would call an expert. Expertise embodied in the form of software or algorithms we'd call technology. Expertise embodied in rules or or protocols uh, that exist in hierarchical organizations, but also in, in various you know, distributed forms of expertise, meaning, you know, I, the manager, want to manage a large number of people, so I give them rules that they need to adhere to. Well, that's because I, the manager expert, understands the big picture and I want to keep control over them. So I think technology is a, is a major factor in our relationship with uh, expertise, <laughs> uh, not just experts. So you're a professor. And you see students every single day, and you're trying in some respects to get them to be better critical thinkers. Let's say that you're a parent and you were trying to advise your child on a course of study. They are trying to be a data scientist or an analyst. What curriculum would you recommend to your child going to university? Oh, I would say we need to balance breadth of perspective with depth of expertise. And that means let students pursue what interests them. Uh, I would get rid of the idea of education as instrumental in a, vo- in a almost a votech sense and instead focus on education as i mean it sounds so trite and overplayed but teaching students how to think not what to think mm-hmm. and i believe with this emphasis on triangulation and breadth of perspective that that means integrated education multiple disciplines uh, many lenses on seeing what the world is today, what it's been historically, and and those that multi-lens integrated approach hopefully will help you navigate the future world a little bit better. Clearly, you are a proponent of teaching, which allows students to have different points of view through different lenses, and clearly that would require a certain kind of diversity of thought among the professor staff and among the administrators. What's been your experience in terms of the student experience? Are we starting to see some diversity of thought, diversity of politics, diversity of lenses that you're describing that can construct their learning experience? Sure. So we've definitely seen uh, improvements now. For me to suggest that we've gotten to the point where we can claim we've gotten full diversity, inclusion, and uh, and the number of perspectives I would like to see, uh, I don't think we're there. We're going in the right direction, uh, but we're not anywhere near complete in that journey. So the one thing I will highlight, and I think this is a relatively uh, acknowledged phenomenon, is Oftentimes, academic institutions have uh, a lot of diversity of identity, a lot of diversity in gender and ethnicity and race. What they often lack is diversity of political perspective, uh, as you mm. just highlighted, Joe, right? So um, my suspicion is, at least among you know Northeast liberal arts colleges – uh, the the skew is in one direction and it's not 
the conservative direction. Um, and so I, I do think that's a little bit problematic because you do want to expose people to different ideas, different perspectives, including different uh, political perspectives because they do work their way into teaching and subtly and in some cases not so subtly um, in terms of recommended policies, etc. So this is a journey we're on. We're going in the right direction, and I am by no means uh, ready to claim victory and say we're done. So, Vikram, the first time that you and I met each other was over Zoom, because, you know, that's how we do things this, these days. And you had a picture on your wall uh, behind you of a fox, and you noted that you had a hedgehog, a stuffed hedgehog at your feet. Uh, I think that many of our loyal listeners might remember during our conversation with Tim Harford that he alluded to this fox and hedgehog metaphor, and I think that's the homage that you were trying to make. And I wonder if you could re-explain this metaphor and how it plays into decision-making. The analogy really points to or, or comes from an ancient Greek poet, Archilochus, who back 2,500 years ago or so noted that the fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows one big thing. That analogy has been replicated over history to effectively represent a generalist versus a specialist. Uh, the generalist knows lots of little things. The specialist knows one big thing. And what I have found and the reason I've taken this analogy to uh, and applied it to my work is that I believe a generalist is better suited to navigating uncertainty. And if you have a known problem, i.e. you're in a domain where you're seeking a solution but there isn't uncertainty in problem definition, well, in that world – in fact, a hedgehog may be better. So it's not one is better than the other. It's that they're better for different contexts. Vikram, in your first book, Boom Bustology, you introduce us to this concept of lenses. And we've alluded to these lenses a number of times during the course of this podcast. And I think what you're really talking about is this idea of addressing things through a multidisciplinary approach. I wonder if you could explain the concept of lenses and how the thought of uh, diversity of thought can really be applied when attacking problems related to financial markets. Yeah, that, thanks for asking the question, Joe, because it's ultimately what I find is that when we're dealing with probabilistic or uncertain domains, and let's be honest, a financial bubble is in fact probabilistic. While we like to analyze it and think we know when we're in one, it's always uncertain. We can't time them, etc. So in some of my early work in the, in, the, in the finance domain, what I found was that by taking a fox-like approach, a generalist logic, connecting dots rather than generating dots, that in fact you could increase the probability of identifying a bubble before it burst. And so that's what I did in that book that you referenced, Boom Bustology. So the first lens in boom bustology was microeconomics, and I think that most of us who have taken microeconomics 101 learn about the concepts of supply and demand, and it's nice and tidy. As prices go up, demand goes down. It costs more, I want it less. But what you suggest is that that's not really how things happen in real life, is it? And, and anyone who follows Bitcoin can tell you that that's, uh, that's not our reality, that sometimes when the price goes up, demand goes up with it. 
and I think you suggest that that's because microeconomics is only one lens that we would apply. You cite the work of Hyman Minsky and allude to the Austrian school that are there are things that help explain some of these bubble scenarios like like Bitcoin or the tulips in Holland. I wonder if you could walk our listeners through what's on the other side of microeconomics. What are other lenses that are important? Yeah, look, lens two, in fact, is macroeconomics. And I do highlight um, Hyman Minsky, uh, who thinks differently and thinks about credit, which is very pro-cyclical, which is when things are going well, uh, things get even better. So it's a sort of alternation between virtuous and vicious, if you will. Uh, That's one way to think about it. And the ultimate sort of insight, I think, that comes from the Austrian School of Economics is mispriced money is often misused money. Yeah, and the thing I think is really fascinating is if I oversimplify a little bit your model, it suggests that at the core of this idea of supply and demand is you have something that I want. I have a price in my mind that I'm willing to pay for it, and we can negotiate that. But increasingly, you have people buying commodities that really aren't for themselves, and they use this cheap money to take on debt, to buy things that they really don't really need but are speculating on, and then all craziness ensues. That's right. That's right. Look, it's the ultimate greater fool theory logic, right? Which is, I don't really want this. I have no use for this. But I think you or someone else may want it, or you may believe that it's going to go up even higher than I believe. And so I'll buy it and sell it to you. Right. Fueled by uh, a debt to buy it. So as soon as that collapses, uh, the party ends very quickly. And one other interesting highlight that you make is that there seems to be a high correlation between someone building the tallest building in the world at that point and the fact that the boom might be coming to an end. Sure. And what I try to look at there is this belief that it's different this time or hubris or overconfidence can also fuel bubble dynamics. And one of the indicators I use to sort of highlight that is the world's tallest skyscraper. And and very briefly, Joe, from a historical perspective, you can see this works. In 1929, Three buildings competed to become the world's tallest tower, 40 Wall Street, the Chrysler Building, and then ultimately the Empire State Building. We obviously were followed – 1929 was followed by the Great Depression. Um, And then roll the clock forward to 1973 and 74. We had the Sears Tower and the World Trade Center. We had a decade of stagflation that felt like a bubble bursting. In 1997, uh, the world's tallest tower moved to Malaysia, the Patronus Towers, which was de facto ground zero of the Asian financial crisis. And it claimed that title before the Asian financial crisis really got going. Um, 2000, uh, they started building Taipei 101 in the home of the at least the hardware side of the tech boom and the semiconductors. Um, and that was in Taipei, with, which became the world's tallest tower. And then in 2007, within weeks of global equity markets peaking before the global financial crisis, the Burj Dubai, labeled later uh, the Burj Khalifa, claimed the title of the world's tallest freestanding structure. All of them were built with borrowed money. So there's this misallocated capital dynamic. It usually happens when banks are confident, if not overconfident. And then there's this speculative instinct. Most of them are built by developers. They're going to go attract tenants, or they hope to. And as we wrap up this conversation, I wonder if you could leave us with a few key thoughts about what you think is happening in the world of data that is fundamentally changing the world. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, one of the thoughts I have here, Joe, is that social media and data analytics combined with social media has 
increase the polarization in the world in an unfortunately negative way. Uh, but I do think there's antidotes to it. And the antidote is, uh, you know, for us to proactively and mindfully seek multiple sources of information. Unfortunately, lots of the algorithmic data tends to feed you what you already believe in. And so you tend on a psychological basis to believe more and more people believe the way you think. Mm -hmm. And so technology is changing our very perception of reality in a way that's creating a reality that we may not want. And so my view is let's not lose the value that can come from technology, data, and different sources of information. Let's mindfully and proactively, deliberately extract the value from it by following multiple sources, multiple types of information and data, um, and, and therefore get a better picture of the world, not a biased one. Yeah, and in fact, what you're describing is in some respect to your classic hedgehog behavior, right? Uh, I think Philip Tedlock describes, you know, there are people it, that had, that start the conversation with a political point of view and then look for the facts that back up their specific point of view. And they tend to be the worst at forecasting the future. And I think what you're suggesting is each of those, you want to rise above hedgehogs to be the fox that can understand these different lenses. Well said. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Tetlock's work. Uh, I think he's done some some really insightful thinking here. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the uh, the biases, confirmation bias, etc., are as well as some of the the problematic uh, manifestations of overconfidence are quite visible in experts, and therefore surface in various ways. And so, yes, anything you can do to combat uh, those. Uh, problems from infiltrating your thinking, I'm all for it. All right. They tend to be hyper-confident and hyper-wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right or wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> never in doubt. Exactly. And finally, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, sure. So probably the easiest way to, to find out more about me or my work is uh, my website, which is just my last name.com, manshuramani.com, or I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and they can find me there as well. Well, Vikram, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. We need experts. We find value in their wisdom and the algorithms that they create. But Vikram Mancharamani reminds us that the best decisions triangulate expertise. They allow us to keep experts on tap, not on top. He encourages us to be bold and question these experts and foxy in our decision-making. <laughs>